Hello, fans of mysteries and fans of horses. You found the perfect place to be because this is Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. And my name's Lisa Williamson. And I am the rube, and Lisa Williamson is the expert about horses. And to prove that, we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of horse bits before we start our main part of the show. And this week, I'm choosing, dear, uh, the knee. The knee. Yeah. Do you have anything interesting to say about the knee? Mm, not a ton. Basically, the knee is the juncture or the divide between where the muscles end and all tendons and ligaments start. There's obviously tendons and ligaments sure. above the knee, but there are no muscles below the knee. So all the large muscle masses that you see in the shoulder that go down into the forearm, then they kind of attach to tendons and then it's just tendons below the knee. Um, The knee is made up of a series of very small bones stacked in two layers. And then there's one big bone at the back, which goes by a bunch of different names, but the one I prefer is pisiform bone. (laughs) And, uh, so that bone you have to be super careful with. You can always see it if you look at a horse in profile because it looks like they've got a dent backwards mm-hmm. in their in their leg. So that's that that's different than our knee joint, where the where the jo- the main bone is on the front of it. Then, right? Yes, but that's because our knee is the same as the horse's stifle. Okay. So basically, when we're talking about knee and hock, we're talking about our ankle. I see. Yeah. So. So uh, yeah. So the horse's leg is basically you could think of it as an ankle, or you could think of it as a finger. Mm-hmm. And I think a finger is a more evocative way to look at a horse's leg because yeah. it's when you look at your finger, you're basically looking at a horse's leg. Mm-hmm. So our fingernail has developed the way it has, but a horse's fingernail has become a hoof and encased the bone at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I just think it's kind of interesting. You don't really think about it that way until someone tells you that's what mm-hmm. it is. But but yeah, the horse is... So below the knee is basically... Well, so would the knee be considered like the upper knuckle then? If we're thinking about it as a finger. Yeah, I guess so. Would they have the equivalent of a think, wrist? Well, I think it is it is basically like the wrist, but the bone oh, okay. structures are all different. All like different, in our yeah. wrist, yeah, we've just got all the um, phalanges, I guess, yeah. or the long skinny bones, and then meeting with the arm bones. But I don't even know the name of them. Radius and ulna. Yeah, there um, you go. <laughs> but yeah, with the with the horse, it's uh, yeah all these little stacked up tiny little bones. And if a horse has a problem, it's called back at the knee, which is again looking at the horse in profile. If their knee bends a little backwards, you know, and sometimes you'll see those people stand and their knee kind of bends backwards. Um, those people, I've been told, uh, tend to be very prone to lower back pain. I see. Uh, my problem is the opposite. My knees always bend forward. Um, but if you have a horse whose knees bend backwards, then they're going to be more susceptible to... Are you susceptible to lower front pain then? If yeah, I guess so. Forward? That's my problem. Um, yeah, those horses are more susceptible to bone chips and things like that. So their knee bones will actually break. Okay. Yeah. And then the term for little particles of bone floating around are... Mice. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> huh. This is a layman's term, but of course. yeah, that's what they're referred to by everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. So you did have something to say about the knee. Yeah, I guess I did. <laughs> and then I'll uh, apologize for my voice as well, because I guess we were supposed to record on Sunday. Yes. And I came home from teaching lessons and just walked up the stairs and walked down the hallway and went to bed and slept for the next 12 hours, because <laughs> turns out I had the flu or something. Yeah. So still... Uh, speaking with a grackle squawk to uh, capture a phrase from Harrison Bergeron. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk Vonnegut, wonderful. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I apologize. We forgive you. Okay, thank you. What is their story this week, dear? Do you remember what it was called? Oh, uh, it was called... A Great Shot. And you, you uh... were thinking, oh, vaccinations. And I went, nope. <laughs> I said, nope. That's a clue. But, okay. Shall we just get on with it? Sure. You'll figure it out as we go? Yes. Okay. This is, as always, sometimes they don't figure it out at all. Yeah. It was 11 p.m. on Saturday, okay. October 17th, 1874. What were you doing in 1874 on... October 17th, David. 1874? Yeah. Uh, probably settling down to watch Happy Days. 
1874. Oh, that's different. Yeah, very different. I was I was a glint in my great 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 grandfather's eye. Probably. Okay. And the location is a place called Castaloga, California. Castaloma. Castaloga. Oh, Castaloga. Okay. So not as nice as Castaloma. No. The incident is a man by the name of Harry Larkins, who was a former English army officer turned New World drama critic, who was at that time (laughs) working as a mining journalist. Um, He was currently residing in the mining area near Castaloga, California. Okay. Uh, On that particular evening, he was attending a party. I'll put that in quotation marks. He was a mining reporter? Yeah, that's well, surveyor, reporter. I guess he had been hired by a company because they had mining interests and he I was see. reporting back. So he yeah. wasn't like writing for the newspaper about I don't mi- so, no. <laughs> things happening in the mine. No. This week in the mines. Yeah. Although they used to have that, but in the olden days on the radio anyway. So the early bird mine this week, blah, blah. Wildcat strike. <laughs> I used. To, I remember we used yes. to listen to that. Used yeah. to have the anyway. Um, so that particular evening, he was at a party, uh, playing a social game of cards in the rooming house of William A. Stewart, which uh, this place was near the Yellow Jacket Mine in Vallejo. There were a number of assorted ladies. I think we'll put those that word in quotation marks. And gentlemen, uh, there was a knock on the door, and the host answered. So this was 1874. 1874, yeah. And so a person was there asking to see Larkins. So the visitor stated he wouldn't keep him long. And then Larkins was then called to the door. So again, this is like 11 at night. Someone comes knocking, looking. Sure, sure. So it was dark outside, obviously. Larkins was unable to see who was standing outside. And he stepped out into the darkness. That person then said to him, I have brought a message from my wife. Take it. And then the man pulls out a Smith & Wesson number two six-shooter yeah. and shoots Larkin point-blank in the chest. Oh, dear. Yeah. Larkin calls out, let me out, let me out, and then staggers back into the house, staggers down the hallway, uh, and then somehow managed to open and fall out the back door. Uh, <laughs> and when he hit the ground, he was dead. All right. So one of the men present... He, he was... He had a good sense of drama. Yeah. He, he would have been a good drama critic. Yeah, he would have been. So one of the men that was present, a Mr. MacArthur, unsex, uh, unsuccessfully attempted to shoot the assailant. Okay. Larkin's assailant was easily detained at the scene by the other occupants of the house who initially talked of lynching him. Huh. But the house's owner, Mr. Stewart, vetoed that suggestion and the group then took the assailant into the authorities. So... On the journey, the assailant appeared calm and he talked freely with the men present of what he had done. Upon arriving at the police station, the assailant told the police his name was Edward Mybridge. What? The photographer? A great shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the photographer. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. So, who was Mybridge? You already spilled the beans, but that's okay. Um, there's more to it than that. More, much, much more to it than that. Okay. Edward Mybridge, who had been born in England in 1830 as Edward James Mugridge, had come to the USA at age 20 as a bookseller. So at the time of the shooting, he was a well-known photographer, best known for his portraits of the land of the American West. Hmm. So Mybridge is now better known for his pioneering work in the study of motion that he was able to do due to his innovations with stop-action technology. He's also considered to be the first person to reanimate photos as moving pictures. Wow. Yeah. Mybridge had spent the preceding seven if years... Uh, if you've seen the recent film, Nope, you will have seen well, That's why I work. kept saying nope. Every time you <laughs> make a guess, I go, nope, that's a clue. Nope, that's a clue. Am I right? It's a good, good clue. I, I didn't know. pick it up, though. You missed it. Okay. So, yeah, he had spent the preceding seven years taking photographs of various places in the American West, including Yosemite and the newly acquired state of Alaska, often working on commission for the U.S. government and the Lighthouse Board. He was also commissioned by the U.S. Army at around this time to photograph the Madoc War, which was a war with the First Nations people in Oregon and Washington. But those photos are all very staged. Oh, really? Yeah, very. Um, his photos of the building of the Golden so did, Gate. Wait, let me just step back a bit here because okay. this is curious. So there's stage photos of the war. Yeah. Between the Native Americans and the settlers. Uh-huh. Did they have settlers dressed as Indians? No, no, figures? it wasn't the settlers. It was the actual army. 
Oh, so the army was fighting. Yeah. So did they dress the army? Uh, it's, it's uh, what, it's, I think what they Americans? did was they took a group of First Nations people that was working with the army and they dressed them as the other guys and oh, okay. them posed. I see. Yeah. So anyway, most of the time, though, um, I think his photos were kind of jarringly accurate and daring. Hmm. So, oh. yeah, that was sort of a surprise that they were so staged, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so he also photographed Yellowstone. Yes. That's a popular foot, uh, subject for a photo- photographer. It is, yeah. There's that famous, like for, like in the 40s or whatever, there was a photographer, I can't remember his name now. Yeah, it's, I know who you mean, but yeah. I can't think Ansel of it. Ansel Adams? Yeah, Ansel Adams, okay. yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so anyway, uh, but it was, yeah, his photos of the building of the Golden Gate Bridge that caught the attention of former California governor, railway magnet, and newcomer to the horse world, Leyland Stanford. Okay. And in 1872, my bridge was first commissioned by Stanford to take pictures of Stanford's garden, stable, and ranch, as well as his racehorse, Occident. Hmm. So obviously, Stanford had a big fancy place. Yeah. So Stanford had come to the horse world at the advice of his doctor when his health failed him near the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. He was a competitive man who had fully jumped into the world of racehorses and was said to have been happy to drop all talk of business if the topic of horses came up. (laughs) So regarding the horse photos... I know someone like that. (laughs) Rumor has it that the opinionated Stanford was trying to settle a wager in which he claimed that equine movement was different than that depicted at the time in paintings, which would typically show a galloping horse with the four legs extended straight out in front of the horse and the hind legs likewise extended straight out behind the horse. And if you've ever looked at like old English Yeah, pictures, like hunting pictures yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah, that's yeah, how they sure. jumped as well, yeah, aren't yeah. they? Legs, kind of like Superman, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's how the people believed horses moved and yeah. jumped. So, but Stanford felt that that was not right. So Stanford was interested in the study of equine movement as a way to improve his horse's training and speed at the track Hmm. uh, and was a vocal advocate for the unsupported transit theory of equine movement that varied from what was typically depicted in art. So this is kind of early biomechanics he's looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Stanford had Have been to start somewhere. Yeah, Stanford had been dissatisfied with previous attempts to capture the accurate movement of equines in their various gates, and a horse's legs at high speed travel too fast for the human eye to accurately yeah. see what is happening. I was going to say, like people who are looking at this, you obviously are just making a guesstimate. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't seen. They, like, if you think about that time, like we've all, well, you and I, but anyone who's interested has watched slow motion photography of a horse running so we have like a good sense of what the legs are doing mm-hmm. but at that time there would have been no recourse to that in fact even like taking pictures of it would have been difficult because the Everything camera would have been, yeah a blur the, the camera speed was so much slower then mm-hmm. yeah because yeah. yeah we talked in a previous episode in horse bits about how if the horse is traveling at for instance 40 miles an hour mm-hmm. the leg has to be traveling at twice that speed yeah. to extend yeah. forward so right. the legs are going at 80 miles an hour so yeah everything's just going to be a blur mm-hmm Okay, so Stanford considered himself a man of science and engineering, so he needed photographic evidence and was willing to pay for it. So he approached Mybridge, who was only aware of a few shots taken of horses in business settings that did not adequately depict what Stanford wanted to see. Well, they're wearing suits and ties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sitting so, around a boardroom. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Boring. Uh, he pointed out that the, the technology was not yet available to get the shots that Stanford wanted, but agreed to work on the problem. Okay. So Mybridge's first attempt to accurately capture equine motion in photography took place in 1873 at Union Park Racetrack in Sacramento. Stanford's favorite racehorse, the standardbred Occident, was photographed using a single camera activated by a trip wire at chest height that the horse hit at about 20 miles per hour. While the resultant photographs were blurry, they did show that the current accepted depictions of equine movement were incorrect. So Stanford agreed to fund more photographs. Mybridge then started to experiment with high-speed photography. However, Mybridge's experiments were interrupted by a shooting of Larkins. Huh. Yeah. It was an accident waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. 
So Larkins, he was born in India in 1843 as Henry Larkins to a family of East India Company men and women, I presume. Um, <laughs> Larkins was sent to England at the age of three. So his mother, father, and a younger brother stayed behind, but he was sent back to England having never been there. However, he ended up being orphaned during the siege of Kanpur during the 1857 Indian Rebellion. Huh. Larkin continued in boarding school until he joined the army at 16. Well, that's what boarding school was for, it was mm -hmm. to make, uh, make civil make servants. A, make a man out of you? Not make a, so much a man, but make you a functional part of the empire. Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. go to school, then you get you go to the army or you go into the bureaucracy and then you get sent out into these. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what happened to him. So yeah. he became a British army officer. Uh, he served six years in India as a staff officer and then also served as an expert sharpshooter with the French army in the Franco-Prussian War, where he was awarded the Legion of Honor in 1871. Hmm. He then went on to live the life of a con man in Paris eventually spending time in Mazas, a grim isolation prison. <laughs> wow. He traveled to, well, traveled the world and staked a claim in the gold rush in the New World. Okay. He was said by some to have been a man of good family, breeding, and culture. Alternately, he's also been described as a man about town, a person who lived on his good looks, charm, and wit, and an international-level conman and rogue. Yeah. So I guess it depends who you talk to. I mean, they're not exclusive. No, no that's much. true enough. You can start high and f and go low if you want, mm -hmm. or vice versa. So, yeah, upon leaving the army, he traveled as a footloose spendthrift who lived beyond his means. And when he arrived in San Francisco, he attained some notoriety two years before his death in a brush with the law, where he was arrested on a charge of obtaining money on false pretenses. Hmm. However... He actively worked towards restitution and had been gainfully employed the whole time. At the time of his death, he was employed in map making and journalism reporting or mining reporting um, in about the mining regions around Sonoma. He had also been recently employed as a translator and a drama critic in San Francisco just before taking on this job. Hmm. Uh, and that is where he had met Flora Mybridge at the theater. So Larkins became a family friend of Mybridge. Additionally, for the last while, he had been the lover of Mybridge's young wife, Flora. He was a rogue. Yes. So what caused Mybridge to snap? <laughs> well, I don't know. Was it the fact that a man was sleeping with his wife? Maybe. Okay. That's a good, a good guess. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so on the 20th of May, 1871, 41-year-old bachelor Mybridge had married 21-year-old divorcee Flora Shawcross Stone. Mybridge and his wife had what might best be described as a parallel marriage. They each pursued their own interests and seemed to spend little time together. Hmm. The differences in their interests were put down to their age gap. After his marriage, Mybridge continued traveling for work and was often absent from the home for months. Flora spent much time out of out on the town and enjoyed the theater, often on the arm of a gentleman. On April 14th, 1874, the Mybridge couple had a child, Florado Helios Mybridge. <laughs> Fanciful name. Florid indeed. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Mybridge discovered his wife had entered into a relationship with their friend, Harry Larkins. He intervened a number of times. His wife was sent away to stay with relatives and Larkins moved away to Castelloga to work in a mining area. Hmm. However, on October 16, 1874, the child's nurse, Mrs. Susan C. Smith, alerted Mybridge to the continuing relationship between his wife and Larkin. She had in her possession love letters the two were exchanging, and Mybridge had also come across a picture in Smith's house of his offspring with the name Little Harry written across the back of the photo. Hmm. The nurse later reported that Mybridge exploded in a rage. Mybridge, convinced the child was not his, settled his affairs in town, and the next day, on October 17th, headed to Castelloga, located 60 miles north of San Francisco. He had to take a train, a ferry, and two horse carriages to get there. <laughs> he took the time on the journey to stop and test his revolver. He then tracked down Larkins at an acquaintance's home and proceeded to shoot him. Wow. Mm hmm that's a long anger. Yeah. Hmm. 
Mybridge, who is described as being completely docile and tractable, immediately followed the shooting, was arrested without protest, following a full confession to eyewitness James MacArthur, who had escorted him with some help to a nearby Napa jail. Hmm. Uh, from the San Sacramento Daily Union, a reporter who visited Mybridge in jail described him as being in moderately good spirits and very hopeful about the outcome of his situation. Mybridge felt that he was being treated well by the jail officials. He was also very proud of his perceived influence on the other inmates, which he felt had earned him much respect. So in one example, he had protested the abuse of, uh, this is in quotations, Chinaman uh, by a fellow inmate, declaring, quote, no man of any country whose misfortunes shall bring him here shall be abused in my presence, end quote. So Mybridge was soon charged with first-degree murder, for which the punishment is death. Wow. So the trial started February 3rd, 1875, in Vallejo, presided over by Judge F.W. Wallace. So overall, the public was sympathetic towards Mybridge. Yeah. Stanford arranged for Mybridge's criminal defense, and his attorney, Sanford's good friend, W.W. Pendergrast, pleaded insanity on his behalf. <laughs> Pendergrass based his insanity defense on a severe head injury Mybridge had suffered years before in a stagecoach accident in Texas. Huh. So at trial, at least four longtime Mybridge acquaintances testified that the accident had dramatically changed his personality. They reported that following the stagecoach crash, Mybridge was transformed from a genial and pleasant bookstore owner who was a sharp businessman into an unstable, eccentric, erratic, and emotionally unmoored photographer who changed his name at least five times over the course of a decade. Huh. Witnesses described this new Mybridge as an outlandish character with a powder keg persona, a tempestuous oddball who was also a grandiose genius. They described Mybridge as a man who would spontaneously burst into tears and otherwise act irrationally with little provocation, a man who would undertake risky physical deeds and who always had to be on the move. Evidence was given of extreme rudeness and acts of violence, none of which had previously been part of his temperament. Hmm. So when they're talking about him going to like Yellowstone and stuff, there's pictures of him standing on these like precipices. Precipice. Um, and he wouldn't even, it, it was not even safe enough for him to send an assistant out. So he would go out and he'd go like right to the very edge. Like it could have teetered yeah, and crashed yeah. down. But yeah. if it got him the best shot, he was willing to go there. Like he sure. just was oblivious to danger. Huh. He did not care. Interesting. Yeah. So conversely, uh, Dr. Shirts, Shirtliff, the court's expert in insanity. He wasn't wearing a shirt? I guess not. Oh, dear. Um, who then was the director of a local mental hospital, testified that Mybridge was not insane mm. and rather had acted out of passion. Okay. So the trial was covered extensively in California courts and the lover's letters were reproduced in full in the newspapers. <laughs> While it was said that nearly everyone in Napa sympathized with Mybridge and hoped he would be acquitted, Flora actually fully backed the prosecution of her husband. So during the trial, Mybridge undercut his own insanity defense by indicating that his actions were deliberate and premeditated. Huh. So he had taken the time to arrange his affairs in case he himself was killed. Uh, he also made sure that the victim, an experienced soldier and marksman, had no time to defend himself. It was reported that in addition to confessing to eyewitness MacArthur at the time, Mybridge also expressed to MacArthur that he had no regrets for his action, which he felt were justified under the circumstances. And we heard earlier about how he had stopped on the way there just to test his gun to make sure it yeah. was working too. Yeah. So in court, Mybridge's actions were typically calm and collected, and he presented a self-confident picture. It was noted that he also showed what was described as having impassive indifference but also periodically exhibited uncontrolled explosions of emotion. Huh. So Mybridge's attorney said about proving in court that the victim Larkins was a scoundrel who had seduced Mybridge's wife. They also exposed the fact that Mybridge's wife had spent the nurse's paycheck on her herself so that the nurse, Susan Smith, had resorted to extorting money from Mybridge using the love letters as a lure, the discovery of which caused Mybridge to become enraged beyond reason. Huh. So, in closing arguments, uh, Mybridge attorney stated, and this is a quote, every fiber 
of a man's frame impels him to instant vengeance, and he will have it if hell yawned before him the instant afterwards. End quote. <laughs> so he said that every time. Yeah, probably. even for traffic offenses. Yeah, yeah. There were no traffic offenses no. in those days. So in his final remarks, Judge Wallace gave the jury four op- optional verdicts to choose from. First was guilty of murder in the first degree, which was punishable by death. Um, murder with lifelong imprisonment, imprisonment uh, not guilty or not guilty on account of insanity. So the judge also instructed the jury that even if Larkins had seduced Mybridge's wife, the defendant was not justified in taking the law into his own hands. Hmm. However, disregarding Judge Wallace's instruction, Mybridge was acquitted by a jury of mainly gray-haired white males. Women were excluded from jury duty at this time. I was going to say yes. Yeah. At the end of the four-day trial, yeah. um, on the grounds of justifiable homicide. Hmm. This verdict was met with resounding applause in the courtroom. Mybridge's response to the verdict was to wordlessly moan and weep. He then fell into his lawyer's lap, where it was described that he became as helpless as a newborn babe. Wow. Mm-hmm. I guess they had a lot of pent-up emotion there. I think so. So the jury explained that if their verdict was not in accordance with the law of the court, it was in accordance with the law of human nature. <laughs> Basically, they believed they could not punish a person for doing something that they themselves would do under similar circumstances. Okay, so let's go back to Mybridge's accident, because, yeah, obviously that was part of the theory of why he had such a change in temperament. Yes. Yeah, in July of 1860, Mybridge had sold his bookstore and was heading to Europe when he suffered a serious head injury in a runaway stagecoach crash just north of Fort Worth near the state border. The stagecoach, which was operated by the Butterland Overland Mail Company, had just left Mountain Station when it lost its brakes. Too many lands. Mm -hmm. In an attempt to regain control, the driver ended up steering the carriage off a cliff. (laughs) The carriage then hit a tree and Mm -hmm. the entire thing disintegrated. Passengers were flung everywhere. The driver and one passenger were killed. Uh, Six other passengers who had been thrown from the vehicle onto the rocky terrain were all seriously injured. Wow. Mybridge hit his head, presumably on a boulder, and woke up nine days later in an Arkansas hospital, where the doctor informed him he would never fully recover. (laughs) Mybridge had no recollection of the day preceding the accident or the two weeks following it. So over the next year, Mybridge experienced bad headaches, double vision, some hearing loss, a loss of taste and smell, and frequent mental confusion. Maybe he had COVID. (laughs) Uh, He also later claimed... What was that? So, yeah, early symptoms. Yeah. He also later claimed uh, that his hair turned from brown to gray in three days. Huh. Hmm. So, the theory is that the stagecoach accident injured his orbitofrontal cortex. Okay. Um, and so, this would account for any major personality change if a person had a similar um, injury. But also, it can result in like newfound obsessions, as with his newfound obsession with photography. Yeah. Uh, because the injuries to this area of the brain are sometimes connected to the development of obsessive compulsive disorder. I see. Mm-hmm. So a guy called Arthur P. Shimura, Shimamura, sorry, an okay. experimental psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, nowadays, not back then, no. um, and author of Mybridge in Motion, Travels in Art, Psychology, and Neurology, has focused much of his research on Mybridge's case and has speculated that Mybridge not only suffered significant injuries to the orbitofrontal cortex of his brain, but that his injuries also extended into the anterior temporal lobes. So this area of the brain controls the regulation of emotions, reactivity, and risk-taking behavior. The damage caused by the accident probably led to the emotional and eccentric behavior reported by friends and ultimately experienced by Larkins in a negative way. On the plus side... Probably the most negative way. Yeah. On the plus side, Mybridge's injuries served to free his creativity from the conventional social inhibitions of the times. So even today, there's still little effective treatment for this kind of injury. Yeah, it's a interesting uh, puzzle, isn't it? Because we think of ourselves, like you wonder if you have that, it's hard, to, it's hard to describe. So, you know, like, like we are who we are, even though 
we change throughout life. Like we change physically, we change emotionally, we change mentally. We replace all our our entire bodies different by the time we are seven, fourteen, etc. And and yet there's this through line of our memories and the way we our personality and things like that, you know. And so we think of that as us and sort of separate from our body because it's not based, you know, our body changes so much, but our personality still is sort of the same. But it's interesting that something like this where, you know, like a brain injury, which causes your personality to change, it kind of makes you wonder about how much of our personality is separate from our our physical self, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, personality and emotions and, and the, like they said, reactivity. So just the response to things mm-hmm. you know like are you a calm person but now all of a sudden you're just gonna fly yeah. off the handle so yeah all of those all of those things yeah it can completely change who you are and one girl that i used to ride with had a significant brain injury from riding and it okay was a long road back for her yeah um she never recovered fully physically or otherwise but you know did enough to compete i think she was Competed in the London Paralympics, okay. at least one Paralympics. Yeah. But um, yeah, I can remember actually our friend Fiona knew her older sister and so knew the story more from the family perspective. Like I saw the sort of horse perspective where you're always a little bit on display, yeah. right? Yeah. You present a particular persona. Sure. But Fiona was seeing things from the other side and you know she talked about how the sister would describe going to Costco and this girl would just have a meltdown on the floor at Costco. So things like that would be, Mm. yeah, Mm. so upsetting. So yeah, it's interesting how it can change people so much. But yeah, very sad, very sad. And the fact that, yeah, even here we are almost 150 years later and there's still no treatment for it. So, Well, we don't really understand how the brain works very well. So we have ideas and theories, but (laughs) it's it's still quite a mystery. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's... What is it has more neurons and more connections in it than there are stars in the universe mm-hmm. in, your, yeah. in one brain. It's pretty yeah. amazing how complicated it is. Yeah, I think we're um, that theory of plasticity of the brain and how it can kind of rewire and go around these areas that are damaged. But yeah, yeah there's I think never any guarantee that that will actually happen. Yeah. Following the accident, Mybridge was first treated at Fort Smith in Arkansas for three weeks before transferring to a doctor in New York City. He soon fled the noise of the city and stayed in the countryside and eventually returned to New York for six weeks in order to sue the stagecoach company, which earned him $2,500 in compensation. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it probably would have been decent back then. Would have been a pretty good uh, windfall Mm -hmm. besides the accident that knocked you out for two weeks and yeah. changed your Change personality, your personality. Your yeah. for yeah. the rest of your life yeah. <laughs> yeah so once he was well enough to travel to england he then received medical care from sir william gull who was queen victoria's personal physician oh and also has been uh named as a possible jack the ripper oh really yeah oh wow sir william gull is uh, felt to have committed the crimes in order to cover up something that the uh, the prince, yeah, had, prince, uh, yeah, Edward or something, whoever, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think I've read that. Interesting. I don't think it's no very plausible. No, but. I don't think so. But I think I've read that too. So Mybridge remained in Europe for the next six years, uh, recuperating, traveling, and later engaging a number of business ventures. So he claimed it was Gull who directed him towards photography. Between 1860 and 1861, Mybridge filed for a number of patents in the improvement of existing photography equipment and apparatus, as well as household appliances. He also changed his name around this time and continued to change it. Uh, In 1861, he appeared in a photography exhibit in Paris. His whereabouts between 1862 and 1865 are fairly undocumented, but there are some records of him being in Paris and taking part in business proceedings. (laughs) whatever that means yeah uh he later returned to the u.s and started photographing the photographing the american west photographing photographing yeah um a subject that he was very appealing to the citizens of this young country and to this day yeah so continuing with his photography so shortly after his acquittal in February of 1875, Mybridge left the United States on a previously planned nine-month photography trip to Central America as a working exile. 
Uh, it was also a good opportunity to avoid his wife um, and any alimony payments. Um, during his absence, unfortunately, she passed away and their child ended up getting placed in an orphanage. Oh, dear. Yes. It is believed that during this period, Mybridge further developed a shudder with the exposure of two one-thousandths of a second. <laughs> By 1877, Mybridge was back in the U.S. and had resumed his photographic work for Stanford. Stanford provided Mybridge with a photographic shed on the ranch where Mybridge and some engineers... Okay, we have a bit of a hanging part of the story here now. Was this... Did he never see his child again? Did the child just end up as an orphan? And uh, yeah, we'll get back to that. Okay, but uh, yeah, okay. it's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, so my bridge is a battery of twelve cameras activated by electrical apparatus that would trip the shutters as Stanford's horse Occident, who was a trotter, mm. was driven past by driver Jazz Tennant. Making use of the high-speed shutter he had developed, Mybridge would shoot the footage against the white angled wall of the shed so that the image of the horse would pop. Huh. Twelve photos were submitted to news outlets, but they were rejected due to the photos having been retouched, which was common practice at the time. So a year later, Mybridge undertook a number of experiments, first on June 15, 1878, using the trotter Abe Edgington, whose sulky wheels tripped the camera wires to take a series of pictures of the horse in motion. On June 17, 1878, Mybridge photographed the thoroughbred racehorse Momet being cantered under saddle by rider G. Dom. So that's the very famous okay. picture that we see in was started the movie Nope, for okay. instance. Okay. Then on July 19, 1878, Mybridge held a press conference where he invited journalists to witness him photograph Stanford's horses. The first horse to go past the camera was a trotter driven by trainer Charles Marvin. This was followed by the racehorse mare Sally Gardner, ridden by G. Dom. As Sally Gardner galloped past the cameras, her girth broke. So this unplanned additional event was all captured on film. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So Mybridge then had the journalist stay it was as he the de- first uh, photograph of a horse giving girth. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, Mybridge then had the uh, journalist stay as he developed the photos in front of them, so that there could be no question that they were authentic. The results were widely published, but caused disbelief amongst some who <laughs> felt that the horse's legs could not assume what was perceived to be such awkward positions in motion, <laughs> gathered up under the horse's belly mid-flight rather than extended front and back. At all times. Mm-hmm. Mybridge then proceeded to tour the U.S. on a lecture tour called Science of Animal Locomotion to debunk the opinions of his naysayers. <laughs> on October 19th, 1878, his photos were published in Scientific American. I did not realize that magazine was so old and mm. been around for so long. Yeah. Interesting. And in December of the same year... It's amazing his... that... Uh, no, it's called Unscientific American. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and in December of the same year, his photographs gained him worldwide attention when they were published in the French scientific journal La Nature. In 1880, at the California School of Fine Arts, he gave his first talk on equine locomotion and biomechanics and demonstrated his photos with his new invention, the Zoo Praxiscope. The precursor to cinema. Huh. Between, so it would be like Zoa Praxiscope, I guess. I guess. It just says zoo. But, uh, between 1884 and 1885, in conjunction with the University of Pennsylvania, who is a great university. They've got a great uh, vet school there. Uh, my bridge, <laughs> they do. They do. Sure, they do. I just like your standard. That is, yeah. If, if I <laughs> need to look anything up, it's usually University of Pennsylvania. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Mybridge produced over 100,000 photo- photographs. Phot- photographs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in trouble with that word. Yeah, I am. Of wild and domesticated animals in motion. Human models were also used performing a variety of tasks. When you start saying photographs, then I'll start being really concerned. Photographs. Photographs. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, unfortunately, Greg, for Mybridge, oh, I'm sorry, never mind. Okay, unfortunately for Mybridge, technology was advancing at such a great pace that his planned 300 lectures using his zoo praxiscope at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair were a flop, as his technology already had been surpassed by France's Lumiere brothers. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mybridge returned to England in 1894 
where he traveled and gave talks on photography. He died of prostate cancer at his birthplace in 1904, leaving a large-scale model of the Great Lakes unfinished in his back garden. <laughs> his newest obsession. Yeah. Flora Mybridge, following the shooting of her lover, filed for divorce from Mybridge on December 17, 1874, on the grounds of extreme cruelty. Hmm. Her first petition was dismissed. Yeah, I don't know if that's a really like legitimate arg argument to dissolve a marriage because the person killed your lover. Yeah, probably. That was very cruel of him. Mm -hmm. So, but on April... 1875, Flora filed a second, and this time successful, application for divorce. Mm. She was awarded alimony on April 30th, but was unsuccessful in attaining any money as Mybridge had left the country on May 1st for Guatemala. Hmm. Flora died suddenly at St. Mary's Hospital on July 18th, 1875. Reports alternately attribute her death to typhoid, a stroke of paralysis, or spinal inflammation. She was 24 years old. Wow. Yeah. The Mybridge's child, Florado. You were worried about him. I was. For good reason. Nicknamed Floddy. Floddy. <laughs> Poor kid. Had been placed with a French couple immediately before Flora's sudden unexpected death. Floddy then ended up in a Catholic orphanage for a year, at which point Mybridge arranged for him to be moved to the Protestant Orphan Asylum, a site he had earlier photographed. Although it is believed that Mybridge visited Flotty a few times before Flotty turned 10, that contact ceased when Flotty was placed at the Hagen Grant Ranch as a stable boy. So here's a fun fact. The Hagen Grant Ranch was California's most prominent thoroughbred breeding farm, being over 10,000 acres. One section had 24 barns of 64 stalls each. 24 what? barns of 64 stalls each. That's a lot. Oh, that's a lot. Um, yeah. And regularly housed 600 horses. Jeez. It was owned by brothers-in-law James Ben Ali Hagen and Lloyd Tevis. Um, and so there's a very famous endurance race for horses in California, the Tevis Cup. Okay. So this is who the Tevis Cup is named after. Hmm. Uh, Hagen eventually moved his equine operations back to Kentucky and Elmendorf Stables, which is still in operation today. Hmm. So back to Flotty. <laughs> yes. So Flotty worked his whole life as a ranch hand, gardener, train station worker, and car mechanic, but throughout his unhappy life, few had much positive to say about either his skills or his personality. Hmm. Mybridge had little to do with Flotty after the age of 10 or none, nothing, um, and he did not remember Flotty in his will. Flotty was said to strongly resemble Edward Mybridge as an adult, although other, another description has him standing at five foot six, while Mybridge is described as long and sinewy. Hmm. Poor Flotty was also described as cross-eyed. So he died in a pedestrian accident in Sacramento in 1944 at age 70. Huh? So Stanford's 8,000-acre Palo Alton stock farm, which is where the photo shoots were done, yeah. uh, included the stables that were the site of yeah the 1907, or 1878 groundbreaking photo shoot. They eventually were donated and now serve as the site of Stanford University. Oh, wow. Yeah, the main barn of the facility, known as the Stanford Red Barn, still stands today at 100 Electioneer Road and is on the National Register of Historic Places. Recently, a statue of Stanford's Horace Electioneer was commissioned and it now stands in front of the barn. So Stanford and Mybridge eventually fell out over a book that Stanford engaged his friend and veterinarian, Dr. Dr. J.B.D. Stillman, to write. So it was about an analysis of equine movement and entitled The Horse in Motion, published in 1882. It contained no pictures because the technology of the time was still not readily available, but did feature drawings based on Mybridge's photos. Mybridge was given no credit in the book, however, and a result, as a result, lost out on a significant financial grant from Britain's Royal Society of the Arts. He then proceeded to sue Stanford, but the case was dismissed. Huh. The years-long feud left both with feelings of betrayal and resulted in multiple lawsuits. So we had talked about him going to University of Pennsylvania. So his 1884-1885 study with the university, which was called Animal Locomotion, was the first scientific study to use photographic evidence. So today, as I said, the University of Pennsylvania's, Pennsylvania's School of Veterinary Medicine um, is now home to a state-of-the-art robotic imaging system for studying equine biomechanics and motion. Wow. So, yeah. 
Uh, so MyBridges Photography Innovation sparked the field of equine movement analysis, which is an important component in both equine health and training. Uh, so other advances in equine care that originated with MyBridges movement studies include technology used in things called uh, lameness locators and movement studies related to confirmation. So I did go to a demonstration where vets were showing off this lameness locator. And um, what's the name of that thing that, oh, a metronome? Yeah. Yeah, the one vet just described it. He says, basically, it's just a very sophisticated metronome. That's what a lameness locator is. So it was, yeah, huh. boiling it down. Anyway, so it says, today the transcripts of Mybridge's court case remain important to forensic psychologists due to their depiction of Mybridge's state of mind, past behavior, and behavioral change following his accident. It is now well documented that damage to this part of the brain can lead to impulsive behavior, poor decision-making, decreased emotional responses, and personality changes such as disinhibition, aggressive behavior, and decreased empathy. So even today, while there are some therapies that can be effective to a degree, there are few completely effective treatments for this type of injury. And people afflicted with it can ultimately receive a diagnosis of acquired antisocial personality disorder. In 1982, American composer Philip Glass composed a libretto called The Photographer, which is based in part on the court testimony of Mybridge's trial. Act 2 features a slideshow of Mybridge's photos. Oh, interesting. I, yeah. never, I never heard it. Mybridge has also been the focus of numerous works of literature, TV, and film, including the 2015 feature film Edward, starring Kyle Rideout, the award-winning 2016 short, The Emperor of Time, and the 2021 documentary, Exposing Mybridge. Mybridge is said to have influenced the works of countless inventors and artists working in many different mediums, including inventor Thomas Edison, artist Mar Marcel Duchamp, Edward Degas, and Francis Bacon, hmm. high-speed photographer Harold Eugene Edgerton, Filmographer John Geet, who used Mybridge's technology for the slow-motion bullet sequence in the 1999 film The Matrix, and the band U2 in their music video for Lemon. The end. <laughs> oh, that was interesting. Mm -hmm. I did not know about that. I didn't know that. I didn't really know much about him, so that that was all new to me. Mm -hmm. Entirely new. Yeah, I think I was just looking at the pictures one day, and then... I started reading about him, and then I saw about the shooting, and I'm like, whoa. But that was yeah, quite a few years ago, and I'd actually forgotten it. And then when we started doing this, it popped back in my head. Okay. Yeah. Conveniently. <laughs> yes. That's a lucky find. Mm -hmm. Well, that was very good, dear. Thank you very much for that story. You are welcome. Thank you for telling us about a sociopath and a murderer. <laughs> All in a day's work. <laughs> okay. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that ripping yarn here's what you can do you can go to something like google sorry you can go to I guess you can go to google podcast or you can go to apple podcasts and you can rate us or review us that would be very nice if you did that and uh or if you enjoyed the show how about drop us a line as we say uh if you go to sneakydragon.com you'll find our show there and you can leave a comment underneath the show and we will read your comments and having said that i'm going to read a comment right now so we had a comment from louise on the website and Louise said, It's great you started season two of Horse Mysteries with a frank discussion about mastication. It's a perfectly normal and necessary activity for stable individuals. In this case of Candy, it's sad the location of the victim's remains remain a mystery. Even if the shady horse dealer didn't conspire to murder her, at least he paid a price for preying on her finances. I agree with Lisa that women didn't have as much clout back then, but these days they are still vulnerable to con artists, especially lonely widows and divorcees. On the same day this podcast episode dropped, there was a news story about a Canadian widow who said she had lost nearly $800,000 to a man she never met in person after she posted a dating profile on Facebook. He talked her into paying his medical bills and into giving him money to invest in Bitcoin. In the piece, an expert on internet romance scams warned, if they ask for money, they're not your honey. <laughs> I'm glad you realized it was John Houseman who was the actor, not A.E. Houseman, the poet. His great signature role was that intimidating Professor Kingsfield in The Paper Chase. His character used the Socratic method to teach contract law. Lisa, do you use the Socratic method with your students? And if so, is it effective? I think I do not. 
You don't use the Socratic method. That is to ask a question mm-hmm. and then and then provide the answer. I think it's Socrates' yeah. method. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's to provoke. I guess it was Plato. Why is it called the Socratic method? Wasn't Socrates writing about Plato? Or am I wrong? I don't know. Anyway. But yeah, that, I think the purpose is to pro- provoke or promote, rather, kind of a debate sort of situation, isn't it? Like, you ask a question. I don't know. <laughs> I looked it up, but... Um, as far as I, as far as I remember, in pl- Plato anyway, it's a person asks this question, and then he ha- has a very long answer, and in in that answer is the the lesson, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's so much to inc- encourage dialogue, or as it is to just you know give you something to hang your head on and uh, give a long talk. But what do I know? Mm-hmm. I'm not Socrates, who they told us what Plato said. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that right? I don't know. It's hard. I, it's been a while since I. Uh, it's been a while since I Plato'd. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you for writing, Louise. That was very nice. And if you would like your thoughts read on this particular podcast, well, think about writing in. You can, as I said, you can go to the website, sneakydragon.com. You can write to us at our email address, sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. And uh, we will think of other ways to make ourselves accessible to you. So, everyone, uh, thank you for listening to the show this week. And, Lisa, Mm -hmm. what's next week's show called? Untouchable. Untouchable. It's about a very fast horse, everyone. Nope. Oh. <laughs>